Yes, may that be the case for us this morning as we open God's Word together. May He speak to us, and I hope that's your heart's desire today, is to hear from God. Not from me, but from God. And that's what happens when we open His Word. We're doing that, continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, and we are uh, going to be in chapter 9. Although I want to begin today with a little more extensive review of last week's message than I normally would do, and there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, One of them is, as we talk about Christian liberty, this is really something that we need to get down. Like, we need to understand how this works for the sake of not only our interpersonal relationships, but also for the sake of the future of our church, because there is undoubtedly going to be things that are going to arise, and the application of these principles will be very important. Uh, The other reason is that last weekend was a holiday, and uh, six or seven hundred of you were holidaying. And didn't hear the message, and it was an important one in the series. So I'd like to ask, if you were not here last week, and you, you're a Bethelonian, if you would please listen to it. Go online, uh, download it, podcast it, go to the media center, pick up a copy of it. I want all of us to hear it. It was a very important one uh, to get this liberty thing. And, you know, I don't know how long it'll be till we're talking about this liberty stuff again, so let's get it right now. Now, I do want to review some of what we talked about last week. By Christian liberty, let's remind ourselves, we're talking about areas of personal lifestyle that God has not told us in his word are necessarily right or wrong or appropriate or not appropriate for a Christian. So these are gray areas where there is oftentimes uh, differences of opinion amongst Christians as to whether we should be participating in them or not. And In 1 Corinthians, in the church of Corinth, there was one of these issues. And their issue was whether or not it was appropriate for a Christian to eat meat that previously had been involved in idol worship. Some people said, totally fine, tastes great, and it's on sale. Other people said, uh, not so much because I was saved out of idol worship. The last thing that I want to do is to have anything to do with it ever again. And so... Uh, we have people whose consciences are weak about it and do not have freedom to participate. And then there are those whose consciences are strong about it and feel free to participate. Now, clearly, this is not a struggle uh, for us today. I don't know anybody in our church that's battling about whether or not we're free to eat meat that has been offered to an idol. So the beauty of this is that we can talk freely about this one. Nobody's getting upset about it and create a paradigm for how to apply it to the things that maybe we do have disagreements on and conscientious struggles. Now we've talked about how on, on, in the area of liberty, there are really four kinds of Christians on any particular area. And this is uh, Joe Aldrich's uh, material here. Thank, thank you, Joe, for helping us understand this. First of all, you have in in any area a professional weaker brother. This is the person who they do not have freedom of conscience to participate in it. They think anybody that does participate in it is absolutely wrong. It has always been wrong. It always will be wrong. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. It is wrong. And they will view judgmentally people that do have freedom to participate uh, and they don't like them very, very much at all. So these are not hard people to identify Perhaps you're one of them this morning. Secondly is the susceptible weaker brother. This is the person who in the area of this particular area of Christian liberty, they're not 
judging other people. They're not worried about other people. They feel it within themselves that they do not have freedom of conscience to participate, but they are, they're, they're possibly influenced by the example or word of the stronger brother. This is who uh, Paul has in mind in chapter 8. The third uh, category is the mature brother who doesn't participate. Now, they got freedom in the area. They don't judge anybody for participating in it. They just choose not to. Okay? Finally, you have the participating mature brother. This is the person who not only has freedom in the area, they are more than happy to participate and they enjoy it very much. What was going on in Corinth was that the participating mature brothers in the area of idle eat meeting, idle eat meeting, idle meat eating, were flaunting their freedom to eat idle meat in front of the susceptible weaker brother who was seeing their example and is being influenced to do what they're doing in spite of the fact that their conscience tells them that they're not free to do it. And this is creating a faith crisis for the weaker brother. Now, Romans 14 makes it clear that we are not, let me make this clear, we are not to violate our consciences. And we all have, you know, here today in this room, we have consciences that are stronger and weaker. We're all over the board on all kinds of issues here today. But here's what we can know. If my conscience does not give me the green light, I am not to do it. Even if I know that my conscience is wrong. We've talked about that already. So the danger here is for the weaker brother to do what is He's not free to do, and by doing that, to actually sin. Paul says the stronger brother is sinning against not only his weaker brother, but also against Christ by the attitude that he is cavalierly showing about the particular area. He is not caring for his weaker brother. He is not loving the weaker brother. So what are we to do? And Paul teaches in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8, that the stronger brother is not to look down at the sensitivities of the weaker brother and just say, what is wrong with you? Don't do it. Also, the weaker brother is not to judge the stronger brother for participating with their freedom. And that by doing that, the church can remain unified and we can love one another. Specifically in chapter 8, Paul says that the stronger are to be willing to limit the expression of their freedom for the sake of the weaker brother and to be willing not to do it. Now, I spent some time talking about something that I have observed in this whole area that is uh, a concern to me. And this is in last week's message, which you've all agreed that you're going to listen to if you didn't listen to it live. But I'm going to go over this again because I think it's such a problem. Oftentimes what happens with people that maybe spend years of their life in the weaker brother category Suddenly they discover, oh, guess what? I'm not right on that. We actually have freedom in Christ to participate in these things. And they swing all the way to the other side. And now the participating in the, in the freedom becomes a very important thing to them. They are all about eating idle meat. It's all about eating idle meat. And they want to talk with everybody about it. And they want to debate about it. They want to go to churches where they are free to eat idle meat at that place. They become, in a sense, enslaved to their freedom, much like they previously had been enslaved to their non-freedom. What Paul is saying here is don't be one of those either. 
Maturity is getting to the place where you can take it or leave it. I'm happy to enjoy this. I am free in Christ to enjoy this. And I will if I have the opportunity. But I am also willing not to participate in it if it's going to be better for the unity of the church or my relationship with my brother or sister. It's not that big a deal to me. That's the place of real freedom and maturity. And I hope that all of us want uh, to get there. I hope that you don't look at that list and say, you know, I'd really like to be one of those weaker brothers. No. We should be wanting to be the stronger brother. Because the stronger brother is the one whose conscience is actually more consistent with God's word and his will on a matter. So I said last week that today I would spend a little bit of time talking about how can I go from being maybe one of the weaker brothers to being one of the stronger brothers? How can I mature my conscience in an area of Christian liberty? I have a few thoughts for you today. Here's the first. Ask this question. Is God's revealed will firmly in my mind so that it can shape the application of that truth through my conscience? We talk a lot, of course, about God's word and that God's word is his will. If God has said it here, this is the way that it is. If he has not mentioned something about it here, it probably is not that big a deal to him. So in these gray areas, what we are what we need to do is to make sure that we have studied as best we can what God has said about that particular area or maybe related areas to the thing that I'm thinking about. Make sure that I know what God says because what happens is this. When I, when, when I don't know what God has to say about something, human nature always wants to make rules about it so that... I now can feel self-righteous about fulfilling the rule that God didn't make in the first place, but I feel good about following this particular rule. And if God wanted to make a rule on that, he certainly could have. When we create them, we are stepping beyond what, uh, what he did. So in these areas, then there are, there's really, you have two kinds of people. You have the The legalists and you have the libertines. The legalists want to make rules, all kinds of rules, so that we're protected from doing anything that's wrong. The libertines want to say, there are no rules and I want to just go out and live whatever way that I want. Neither one of these is what the way that we want to live. We want to study God's word, see what God actually says about it, talk to godly people about their perspective on it. Read books on it if you'd like. There's probably a book on about anything that you'd ever want to ask. Try to make sure that you know what God's word has to say on it. It's kind of like, and I do this all the time, but you know how we always do this. We got to filter everything through God's word and we need to look at everything biblically. What we do in this area is we actually look at our own conscience. Why do I feel the way that I do? And to allow God's word to shape my mind, the Bible calls that a renewed mind, which shapes my conscience then and can lead to a growing maturity and conformity with the word. Because what happens is that we can, and I'll get to this in a moment, our conscience can go places that God's word doesn't go. And when we have that kind of thing going on, we need to pull it back to the standard, which is God's word. And this argues for the sufficiency of God's word as a revelation of his will to us. I 
uh, frankly, it's hard enough following the ones that he has put in there, much less the ones that we want to add to it, don't you think? Ten Commandments, are you with me? Those are plenty hard, don't you think, just following those? We don't need to add any to, any to the list. Apparently, you don't agree with me. All right, so here's the second thing. How, ask this question, how has my culture and background shaped my conscience in this particular area of liberty? You know, all of us are the product of so many influences that make us who we are. And it certainly is the case when it comes to these gray areas. I would bet if you have a conscientious issue in a liberty area, it, you've, that's been shaped probably by your background, your parents, the church that you grew up in, uh, you know, your youth pastor who said this is the way that it is, some spiritual mentor in your life, somebody influenced you so that your conscience feels sensitive about this particular area. Ask yourself, why do I feel the way, uh, the way that I do? I have found that my conscience is subtly influenced by the kind of people that I hang out with. Like even to this day, if I go and I hang out with a, a group of people that are really strict about eating idle meat, just go along with that. I don't know anybody who is, but if I was to hang out with somebody like that, I find their fervor about it and they're to it. it kind of, my conscience kind of gets like, I don't know if I'm exactly right on that just because I'm around them. But it goes the other way as well. For example, I remember when I, when I went to College Park. Uh, as the youth pastor, if you don't know my story, I was a youth pastor in Indianapolis uh, for five years before I came here to Bethel. That was probably the first non-legalistic church that I've ever really been involved in. And I came to that church with a lot of weaker brother issues in my conscience. And so I get there and there are a lot of people who didn't have those conscientious issues. And yet, as I got to know them, I really believed them to be godly, Christian, mature people. And so I I felt this tension between my knowledge of and my belief that they really were that more than me, and yet they were doing some things that I mm, wasn't so sure about. Good Christians being a part of. And what happened was, as I spent time with them, I came to admire their walk with the Lord, which had a certain influence on my conscientious perspective on some of the liberty issues that they felt freedom in that I, at that point, did not. So, ask yourself, how have I been influenced and how have these things shaped my conscience? It might help you understand why you feel the way that you do. Thirdly, do I have this issue in its proper place? When the weaker brother is judging the stronger brother, and when the stronger brother is looking down his nose at the weaker brother, both of them are showing that they are making this particular issue way more important than it ought to be. We just got done saying, if God wanted to tell us about that particular area, he certainly could have done it. I mean, have you read the Bible lately? It's long. There was plenty of room in there to mention something. Oh, by the way, uh, uh, I just want you to know, uh, don't eat idle meat. He could have said that, or whatever your issue is, uh, but he doesn't. And so 
if I am making something more important than it is to God, perhaps I should realize from that that I need to, to change. Romans 14, verse 17. This is what God cares about. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Those are the issues that he was dealing with in chapter 14. Mosaic laws that people were struggling whether or not they needed to still fulfill them or not. Paul just says, listen, the kingdom of God, it's not about that. It is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What does God care about? That's what God cares about. Not the idle eating meat thing. So am I in proper balance with my particular issue that I feel sensitivity about? Am I making more of this than God does? And then finally, I would suggest praying and waiting. You know, the Bible says that we can cast all our cares upon him for he cares for us. I take from that that there isn't anything in my heart that I am feeling anxiety about that I can't pray to God about. So pray about it. Tell God, you know what? I'm struggling in this particular area. I would like to mature in this area, but I'm not quite getting there. I just want you to know. I want you to to be aware of this. This is a request that I have. And then wait. And if you never get the green light in your conscience about some area of liberty, don't do it. To violate our conscience is never God's will. But who knows? Perhaps you will get a green light. And in proper balance, with deference to the weaker brother that you know in your life and loving him or her, you may find your conscience giving you freedom. And I think maturing in our conscience and maturing in our faith and making these more consistent with God's word is his will. So all of us should want to be the mature brother in this story. Uh, I... I had Pastor Gary, or Pastor Gary kindly shared with me a very personal story from his family about this issue of liberty and love and how to work through that. And with his permission, I posted his story on my blog. So if you'd like to read a kind of a very practical, personal story of a family working through this kind of thing, go to my blog. Pastor Gary has a little story there. I think it would be, I think it would be uh, helpful to you. Okay. Here we are almost halfway through the message. And I know some of you are going, he hasn't even really got to the, any new text yet. This is, this is going long today. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. So hunker down, because now we're going to get into it. And complicating this in chapter 9 is that Paul doesn't even make his point until verse 12. And now I don't have time to work through 11 verses to give you all the explanation of why Paul makes the point that he does. So today, I just want to make the point that Paul makes. We're just going to look at basically verse 12 together. 1 Corinthians 9. Later on, we'll work through verses 1 through 11 and uh, get what he's saying there. Here's Here's what the text says. Nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We've learned 
that these Corinthians were all about their rights. They protected their rights at all costs. They, they, they guarded the borders of their, their egos. They were all about them. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound culturally familiar? <laughs> yeah, that's America, isn't it? We're all about our rights, and don't you dare do what I have a right to do, and blah, blah, blah. This is a very Corinthian way of living, and we're living in that today. So the Corinthians were all about living out their, their rights. Paul begins his chapter by saying this. Hey, Corinthians, am I not an apostle? Now, what's Paul doing with that? Who am I? Am I not an apostle? Paul is basically, he's like, he's like pulling rank with that. Because to be an apostle in the church is to have, I mean, do you have rights and privileges as an apostle? Absolutely, yes. Ephesians 2, the apostles are, they are the foundation stones of the church built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. So to be an apostle, and there was only 13 of them, and they're all dead, by the way. They're all dead. You'll sometimes see them advertising the paper, <laughs> preaching a revival in our area. They're dead. But if Peter shows up here or Thomas or Andrew, you know what? I'm going to say, you, you just come right up here and I'm going to sit down right here. I'm taking out my notes because we want to hear from you. You're an apostle. To be an apostle is to have great distinction in the church. And Paul says, am I not an apostle? Do I not have freedom? Do I not have rights in this? And the answer to this is obviously, yes, you do. In spite of this, though, he says, I have not exercised these rights. And he lists many of them in the verses that we're not going to get into today. Why doesn't he exercise these rights as an apostle? That's what verse 12 is all about. And I want us to get this today. This is a, to me, this is almost like a make or break kind of message. If this truth can work its way into our hearts today, what God can do here. Wow. Why? Do I not exercise the rights that I have as an apostle? We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So let's take a look at that latter part of that verse. It's a key phrase. And what I want us to do is to look at two words in this phrase. You see the word endure and then the word obstacle. Let's take a look at those. The word endure. It literally means to cover or to hide or to conceal. Uh, it's used in chapter 13, verse 7, that love stegos all things. Love endures all things. It's similar to First uh, Peter 4, where Peter writes, love covers a multitude of sins. It covers over them. It doesn't make a big deal about them. It willingly sets them aside. It conceals them. Paul says, we set aside the rights and privileges that we have. We endure anything rather than place an, and here's our second word now, obstacle. Obstacle means to hinder or to restrain. The word had a very specific use in the first century. This is the word that they would use for an army that is in retreat. Okay, so imagine uh, the Roman army is in retreat. And as they go back to Rome, what they would do is they would destroy the road behind them. 
so that the army that's pursuing them can't bring all of their equipment and, and use the road to catch up to them. See, they were really smart back then. Uh, they would cut big grooves, big ditches through the road so nobody could get by. Mayor Daly gives us a fitting illustration of what we're talking about. You might recall a few years ago when Mayor Daly just decided that he was tired of Miggs Field. And he was tired of all the red tape and all that. So one night he sent out his uh, crews and they had bulldozers or whatever. And they just cut these big grooves into the runway. Now by doing that, effectively they render useless <laughs> Miggs Field. Imagine being one of the, you know, you're flying over from Muskegon or something across the lake. Let's go to Chicago. Let's go and land. No, wow, look at that. We can't land there. Look at all those big grooves there. Look at those obstacles there. That's the sense. That's the sense of the word. What is the point that he is making? Here's what he's saying. We, apostles, we conceal or set aside rights and privileges that we have as apostles so that by no means do we put Migsfield obstacles in the way of the gospel of Christ going forward and succeeding. We don't want anything to affect the big thing, which is that God is reconciling sinners to himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ by faith. That message going out to as many people as possible is the most important thing. So therefore, I'll never eat meat again. I don't care. Will I take along a believing wife like all the other apostles? I don't care. Why accept support from churches, which is my right? I don't care. All I care about is that gospel goes forth. And I don't want anything in my life to create an obstacle to that happening. That's what Paul is saying. And that's exciting, isn't it? To see in a man who is, he's consumed with the gospel. And it creates in him this whatever it takes attitude. He wanted to see sinners reached. He wanted to see the glory of Christ spread to all the world. Now, did Paul live out a whatever-it-takes attitude? You bet he did. He gave his life for the gospel. All the other apostles did as well, minus John. They gave their lives for the gospel. That's a whatever-it-takes attitude, don't you think? I would say if somebody's willing to give their life for something, that they're, they're pretty much, you know, they're all in. They're all in on it. And the apostle Paul definitely was. And so what Paul is doing here is he is turning this discussion about Christian liberty into really a, uh, a, a judgment on the Corinthians for their real problem. The real problem was not whether or not they could eat idol meat. The real problem was that they had their priorities upside down. They were taking something that was not really that big a deal and they were making it something to go to war over. While the thing that we really should be passionate about, they were minimizing and saying that's no big deal. There was an attitude problem. There was a priority problem in their heart. They were missing it. They were making a little thing a big thing. Eating idle meat. It's kind of like uh, the other night I was over at the Porter County Balloon Fest. Was anybody else there? Apparently not. So we went over there just looking for something to do. And... Um, 
I was surprised because I was standing there actually as they brought out the uh, balloons out of the truck, you know, and those giant balloons, they come out in a bag. It's probably this tall and this wide. That's it. And did you know all it takes to make something that small, really big, is a lot of hot air? It's amazing how big something can get when you fill it with a lot of hot air. I won't even have to develop that at all. You know what I'm saying, don't you? This happens all the time. Making a little thing a big thing. This is what we call pettiness. Pettiness. The antidote to spiritual pettiness is a passion for Jesus Christ and a passion for the Great Commission. When I am consumed with what God is doing and reconciling sinners to himself, when when that is my passion, then these other things don't really matter that much. And I am not going to put my hot air into them to make them bigger than they ought to be. And yet, this happens all the time in the church. People making little things big things, petty. And aren't you glad it's all those other people that are doing it? Yes, of course, we are all guilty of this, I would say, in some way. I know that I am. I've done it often, many times in my life. I've lacked balance. I've I've been petty. And as a pastor, um, I have a bird's eye view on the body life of the church, things that arise, issues, etc. And... Sometimes I see a little pettiness perhaps going on, like once every 10 years or so, maybe somebody's making something little, a little bigger than it ought to be. Let me give you two extreme examples, and maybe by you giving extreme examples, uh, it'll, it'll help us with the more common ones, but I recall some time ago we had... Um, it was, a, it was a Sunday morning. It was, in fact, it was an Easter Sunday morning. And as, as many of you know, we rope off the back sections of the auditorium. Chris talked about this uh, uh, earlier. We have, you know, mothers of small children. We've got uh, latecomers. We've got people that, you know, it's just convenient to have some space for people when they're coming in to the service. So we rope those off and ask people not to sit there. And so uh, it was an Easter Sunday morning. And... Uh, the volunteers, it's just volunteers coming in to serve Jesus early. They're set in the auditorium for the service, and we thank the Lord for them and what they do to do that. Uh, but they were setting the auditorium and putting some ropes up, and there was one fellow who was incensed that they would rope off the seat that he wanted to sit in. And apparently he's back for this service as well. <laughs> And uh, it's good to have you back. Um, and so what happened was he, he became incensed. He slammed his Bible down and he screamed at the volunteer, you are ruining my Easter. And he went out the door, never to be seen again until just moments ago. 
Now, I look at that and I think to myself, you know, I really doubt that we ruined his Easter. His attitude shows he doesn't get it in the first place. Because if you get Easter, you get the gospel. You get the fact that this whole place is celebrating that Jesus gave his life for us. What are we doing here? We are reciprocating. He gave his life for us. We now are giving ourselves to him as living sacrifices. It's all on the altar, all for you. Whatever it takes. And that's the thing that we need to realize is that our attitude reveals whether or not we get the gospel. At issue here is not idol meat or whatever little thing, liberty thing that you want to talk about. At issue is the gospel. Because if I get the gospel, I understand the big picture and what is most important. It's Christ and his reaching of people with that message of salvation. We get the gospel. Another one that stands out to me, and this is probably my extreme example, <clears throat> happened several, many, many, many years ago. Many years ago. <laughs> I emphasize that. Uh, one particular week, we had a woman that um, kind of happened by the church. And it was a woman that you could just kind of look at her and see that life had been hard for this woman. And I sat down with her and we talked and she told me her story. And to this day, it's one of the saddest stories that I've ever heard. I mean, the things that this woman had been through, horrific. So the next Sunday, I was in the foyer of the church and she comes up to me. She came to the service. She comes up to me and she says, Pastor Steve, let me show you something. And she reached into her jacket and she pulled out a dog. The littlest dog I have ever seen in my life. It was like a hamster. It was just this little bitty dog. So there all of a sudden it's a dog, you know. Oh, hi, you know. And she said, listen, this dog is part of my therapy. I've got doctor's orders to have this dog with me. It's helping me cope with the things that have happened in my life. Okay. And so Sunday happened, and that week, I ran into uh, a couple from our church. And again, this was many, many years ago. Let me <laughs> emphasize that. I ran into this couple from our church, and I'm like, hey, how's it going? And, and he's like, you don't want to know how it's going. Kind of like that dirty, hairy sort of voice, you know, like, I was like, oh, and his wife says, Pastor, did you know that Sunday there was a dog in church? <laughs> and I said, oh, is that what this is about? I go, oh, hey, you know what? That woman, I got to know her a little bit. Oh, wow, what a story. And so many, so many hard things in her life. And I said, I think she's just kind of in town for a little while. I said, it's, you know, it's okay. And they looked at me, and I could tell it wasn't okay. <laughs> so I ended, up, I ended up talking to them in my office. And we go into the office, and we sit down, and, and she kind of launches in, and she says, Pastor, you need to do something about this. We can't have dogs in church. 
She says, pretty soon we'll have chickens and cows. And I am not making this up, okay? You cannot make up some things like this. You want all those farmer, farmland animals wandering around the church? Is that what you want, Pastor? And then he says, I'll tell you another thing. I said, he goes, you want one of these running around the church? And he pulls out a picture out of his pocket, and there's a picture of a Great Dane. What do you on my face? You want one of these? I said, oh, okay, hold on. I said, let me tell you about this woman. And so I told more of the story of this woman and her heartache and her, all the bad, really bad things that happened to her. And so I kind of went into that. And then I, and I said, and you know what? It, when I read the story of Christ, he regularly had women with all kinds of sorrows that would come to him and they were seeking help and assistance. And every time Jesus talked with them, he was compassionate towards them and gracious towards them. And it just seems to me that if this is the way that Jesus was towards those women, that towards this woman, we should, we should be compassionate and loving towards her. Don't you think? Which I thought was a really compelling argument. I looked at them and they looked at me. And she says, but we can't have dogs in church. End of story. (laughs) We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. When our hearts are filled with the love of Christ, when we have got the gospel, when I have recognized that I am a great sinner. And as I said in in my comments during uh, communion, if the gospel is not true, I am damned for eternity. When I get that and then realize that the love of God to me in the person of Christ is the only way for me to have eternal life and to be right with God, that creates an attitude in my heart, which 1 Corinthians 9 is telling us is a whatever-it-takes attitude. The, The big things are big. The little things remain little. The main thing is kept the main thing. The minor things never become main things. Why? Because Christ is the main thing. And Bethel, listen to me. This is not, this cannot just be a slogan. It's all about him. This is where the rubber meets the road. If I am all about him, it shows that I get the gospel. When I am making a little thing a big thing, I'm showing by my attitude that I don't get the gospel. That issue is not idle meat. It is the cross. And that is why when we talk about these things and as we interact with one another on these things, we can't just be all, you know, Throwing hot air into the thing and making it big. Why? Because Christ is at stake. And this church is at stake. I mean, if we ever become all issue driven and these things become big, shut the doors and close it down. What's the point here? 
that have been a good place for an amen? I could roll the tape back. If we ever become a church where we're just all about these things, these little things, making the big things, and Christ is not preeminent, shut the doors now. Amen. It's much like one of my favorite lyrics in a song. It goes, such a tiny offering compared to Calvary. Nevertheless, I lay it at his feet. Such a tiny offering compared to Calvary. Nevertheless, I lay it at his feet. All that is within me cries. To you, O Lord, be glorified, Emmanuel, God with us. Mm. Do you get it? My life, my inconveniences, my giving to God such a tiny offering compared to Calvary. Nevertheless, I lay it at his feet. Bethel, I can't think of a more important character quality for the future of our church than this one. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. You know, earlier Pastor Chris was up here and was sharing a few things that we, you know, this would be really helpful for us if you could remember some of these things and put them into practice. And I hope that uh, you don't think that those are like significant sacrifices or anything. Like next week, well, let's go suffer for Jesus in the third row, you know, or Okay, if that's suffering for you, you don't get it, all right? That's like kindergarten stuff. The future, I think, for our church is going to demand much more than that. We have people from so many backgrounds, so many perspectives here. How are we ever going to stay united here? I mean, there are so many things that if we made it a big thing, we could just blow this place up. How are we ever going to be united we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ, to me, is the key. That is so big to us that I don't want to let my thing get in the way of that. I think about the days ahead. I'm, not a, I'm a pastor, not a prophet, but it seems to us that the needs are obvious. We have it's exciting to see what God's doing at Bethel Church right now. And as things get tighter, more and more people are coming to our church, and that means hallways are fuller, and there's inconvenient parking, and, you know, there's new faces around us that we sort of step out of our zone to say hello to and to reach out to. These are all things that have to happen for the future of our church. This, this last week in Awana, our midweek children's ministry, it was, this, it was the kickoff of it. So many kids came and signed up that I think all but one of the clubs are now officially closed with waiting lists. Now you're probably clapping because, boy, I'm glad we were there. We're in. All right. It's great. Awesome. Yeah. Challenges. These are all challenges to us. How are we ever going to meet them? It's going to require people that are committed to seeing the gospel go forward. That's what it's going to take. I hope that you're one of them. And of course, we don't need to look very far to find the ultimate example of this. Paul is not the ultimate example of this, as great as he is. The ultimate example is Jesus Christ. 
Philippians 2, listen carefully. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Did you get that? Say that word with me. Nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. My dear friends, if our Savior was willing to endure such suffering for us, what are you unwilling to do for him? What are you unwilling to endure for the sake of the gospel? What is the big thing in your life? What is the passion of your life? These are the things that uh, Christian liberty issues will reveal. Do we get the gospel or not? So towards the goal of this being applied, I have a few questions just to conclude here. Things for us to ask as we, uh, as, we, as we conclude. Is there anything that I am doing that is creating an obstacle to the gospel of Christ? Relational, attitudinal, some action, word, whatever it is. Am I doing anything that's impeding the gospel going forward? Is there anything that I am not doing that I could do that would pave the way? In what ways does my faith expression resemble the attitude of Paul and the example of Christ? Am I willing to endure, be inconvenienced, or am I all about my comfort and things working out my way? And then finally, can I pray sincerely, God, do whatever it takes for me to seek first the kingdom of God? Can I pray that? Can I? So to conclude today, what we're going to do is I'm going to offer a prayer, and then we're just going to have a little time. Music's going to play, and the, the questions are going to remain on the, at the, on the screen. And we just want to spend just, just a few moments asking the Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts this truth. We began by say, singing, Speak, O Lord, to us. Here we are now. The Word has been taught, and we want to apply. So join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll have a little time.